Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to a new criminal case. Between 1976 and 1977, terror gripped the city of New York when a series of unexplained murders swept through the neighborhood of Queens and the Bronx. The targets were couples and young women walking alone. Police in New York became engaged in a full-fledged standoff with the mysterious killer who took pleasure in sending anonymous letters in order to brag about his crimes. A single signature as ambiguous as it was meaningless, marked with bloody saga, the son of Sam, also known as David Berkowitz. Apart from being an adopted child, a failed soldier, a sociopath, and a schizophrenic, who was this person? Who seemed ordinary and common, and yet frighteningly dangerous? Please join us as we discover the story of this case, although brief, was strange and frightening enough to have left an impression on our collective consciousness for nearly four decades. The Bronx, New York, 1960. Why don't kosher butchers sell bacon? That was a question that often came up at the breakfast table in the Berkowitz family home. Although they were extremely religious, they still observed the Judaic laws governing which foods were permissible to eat and which were not. Mama, you know that in my class, everyone eats bacon for breakfast. Bacon? Ah, it's not digestible. Hashim will be angry with you. Why? Because he has forbidden us to eat bacon. But why? Dave, sweetheart, don't you want to try some of these kinchi that I made for you? Realizing that it was pointless to keep insisting, the child became quiet once again. He grabbed his fork and started to devour his can stuffed with chicken relays, onions, and aromatic herbs. Mama Pearl smiled. The child seemed to be enjoying himself and for a moment forgot all about the bacon. On the other side of the table, Papa was blowing on his tea so that he wouldn't burn his mustache as he drank it. In this tiny cramped apartment in the Bronx where the kitchen, dining room, and two bedrooms flowed into one another, the aroma of whatever Mama Pearl was cooking lingered everywhere and seeped into the sofa, even though it was permanently encased in a plastic cover, just like all the other furniture in the house. Like any Jewish mother, Pearl Berkowitz was concerned and motivated by just one thing, making sure that her family got enough to eat and sometimes even more because that was the only way of showing her love. She took great pride in seeing her husband and son's plate being filled to the brim with food at every meal. Her Dave, her beloved Dave, she loved and cherished him more than the apple of her eye. His cheeks don't get fat. This boy never seems to gain weight even though he eats everything I serve him. She occasionally sighed. Life for the Berkowitz, who arrived from Poland in the 1940s to escape the Nazis and the rampant anti-Semitism, revolved around their son, their hardware store, religious holidays, and anything else that involved the community. Like all other remaining exiles with that family, they forged close bonds with their neighbors who were Ashkenazi Jews and who, like them, had come from Central Europe. The rest of the neighbors were made up of people of colors like Italians and Puerto Ricans. 
While the Mr. and Mrs. Berkowitz were no longer young, they still loved each other deeply. They slept in separate beds as tradition required, but they tenderly held each other's hands every night and gazed at each other for a long time with the utmost tenderness before they closed their eyes. Within the family, who spoke English in public and Yiddish and Polish at home, there was a great deal of love, respect, and a very strong bond. Where Mama Pearl was known for being talkative, fond of gossip, sometimes whiny, but still sensitive and generous, her husband Nathan was not very affectionate and preferred to mind his own business. He listened more than he spoke, and often his nose buried in his accounts, with a cigarette dangling from his mouth as he added endless columns of numbers. Sometimes he let David climb up onto his knees like an intrusive cat. He would lend him his pen, his notebook, and his calculator, and the child would begin to draw circles and calculate the answer to 10 minus $5 as $5. I can picture him as an accountant already, Mama, exclaimed Papa with full pride. Muzzletove, she replied, stirring her soup. Yet David born David Borden was not the natural child of the couple who so adored him. He was an adopted child who was practically offered up by his biological mother at birth. Nathan and Pearl quickly got in touch with his mother, Betty Borden, through a local shopkeeper, and that was how the child came to live in their home, almost like a gift from heaven. From then on, he became their son. Pearl forged a bond with him that was so strong that if Betty were to come back one day to reclaim him, she probably would die. In 1966, David Berkowitz celebrated his 13th birthday at the same time as Bar Mitzvah. This was a landmark phase in the life of every Jewish boy as it marked their journey out of childhood and into adulthood. His father gave him a gift of $100 and his mother made a new suit. As a child, he had always been a loner and although he made great efforts to fit in at the school, he was never really successful. While he was loved, supported, and sheltered by his parents, he was relegated to the back of the classroom at school. As a student, he was mediocre, introvert, and had an unhealthy shyness. He was not able to make friends and often spent recess in a corner, twiddling his thumb while the other boys played ball and marbles. He was distressed by the situation and started to engage in increasingly violent outbursts. Neither his mother's pleas or his teacher's reprimands nor spanking from the principal or even hours of detention managed to calm him down. His bewildered parents brought him to see a psychiatrist who prescribed him medication for depression. But this did not help. In 1966, he was enrolled at Christopher Columbus High School, from which he eventually graduated. It was around this time that Pearl Berkowitz discovered that she had breast cancer. She spent long periods in the hospital for the treatment, and when she returned home, Usually in bad shape, she went directly to her darkened room. It was a very challenging time for her son, who didn't get to see her as often as he would have liked. The family kitchen, which had always been filled with the aroma of Mama's good cooking, now seemed to resemble a sanitized room, void of movement and flavor. After a two-year battle against the disease, Pearl Berkowitz died in 1968, leaving behind David, who was broken and inconsolable. On the evening before she died, she was by her bedside at the hospital. She had opened her already clouded eyes and smiled at him before closing them again. At five in the morning, she was gone. Without a feminine touch to brighten it, the tiny Bronx apartment now became a sad and dreary place where Papa remained seated for hours, puffing on a cigarette, getting lost in his thoughts and never bothering to even look at his son. 
Being a modest man, he never attempted to console the teenager. He never hugged him or kissed him. The neighbors with their unmarried daughters, but also a few divorced women, began calling the Berkowitz one by one bringing them meals that they had made themselves for a widower and his son. It was a well-thought-out tactic meant to flatter the palate and the stomach of a potential husband. Furthermore, as a widower, he was already deprived of good home-cooked meals. Unable to manage his son, his home, being a widower on his own and encouraged by the neighbors, Nathan, the hardware store owner, decided to remarry. When he told David about his plans, his son vehemently opposed and went into such a rage that Nathan became frightened. Finally, he put his foot down, as he usually did whenever he was upset. A man shouldn't stay single, David. Even the Torah says so. I don't care. No woman will ever take mama's place. If you try, then I won't be your son anymore. You don't know about the hell that mama and I went through before we got here. You don't know anything about all the sacrifices that were made just to have you. I think we spoiled you too much. I hate you. David's father was hurt by the harsh words, but he had already made a decision and had no intention of going back on his words. With the help of a matchmaker, he eventually set his eyes on a woman named Itzy Blomstein, who was originally from Brooklyn, also a widow, and to whom David took an intense dislike right from the very beginning. She was a redhead who looked pale and withered. Her eyes were so blue and so cold that they seemed to want to look right through you and gaze into the depths of your soul. Mama, on the other hand, was a chubby brunette with a face full of dimples and was so big that her behind spilled out over her chair which always made Dave laugh heartily. This harpy couldn't hold a candle to her, thought the inconsolable son. As for Nathan, he was willing to accept her as long as she could cook and take care of the house. In high school, the young Berkowitz saw his grades fall with each passing day. He no longer had an interest in anything, had no faith in anything and fell into depression. It was certainly during this critical time that his underlying problems began to develop before reaching the peak in adulthood. Having to go back home every night was an agony for him. This newcomer was an intruder who had brazenly taken over Mama Pearl's kitchen, bedroom, and personal property. In addition, his father seemed to find it all very natural, as if his late wife, whom he loved so much, had never existed before. Family dinners, which had always been so lively when Mama Pearl was around, was now filled with long, heavy silences. David hated everything about his stepmother, from her hooked nose, her clear skin, her long and nervous fingers, her blue turban knotted on her married woman's head right down to the way she sipped her soup so carefully so as to not make any noise. For Itzy, the dislike was mutual, and while she continued to cook for David, it was only to stay in her husband's good graces. The rest of the time she ignored him, as if he were invisible. At the age of 18, Berkowitz enlisted in the army as a way of escaping his unbearable home environment. Perhaps life in the barracks would be more pleasant. He got used to his new home very quickly and became a soldier who always followed his superior's orders and kept out of trouble. During his service, he spent a year in Korea, which was where his descent into hell all began. In Seoul, Berkowitz discovered drugs and enjoyed the illusion of completeness that they provided him. He started using them on an almost daily basis and spent all his money on them. On one occasion, he almost overdosed and died. Yet, at the barracks, no one was aware of his addiction. He struggled to make friends among the ranks and, unlike the other soldiers, he had neither a fiancé nor a girlfriend. 
Korean prostitutes repulsed him and he had never the courage to approach them either. He came down with a tropical disease which led to his discharge and subsequent transfer to a post in the state of Virginia. During that period, he became sober and stopped using drugs, but his extreme loneliness weighed heavily upon him. Unlike the cosmopolitan and multicultural New York of his childhood, Virginia was mostly white, mostly a Protestant state that was very close-knit. He also found out that blacks were not permitted to use the same restrooms as whites, could not visit the same hairdressers, nor attend the same churches and schools. No one here was shocked by this disparity, and it was even considered to be normal. David quickly grew bored in this extremely bigot environment that was so firmly entrenched in the Baptist religion where nothing ever seemed to happen. He felt as if he were constantly being watched by the ladies in his neighborhood who clutched their Bibles to their breasts and walked the streets in groups of three or four in their brightly colored dresses and fancy hats. Once while he was in the changing rooms at work and getting undressed before stepping into the showers, David was harassed by a shocked colleague who exclaimed, Why, why, why are you circumcised? Yeah, mumbled David, who immediately held his towel over his private parts. Are you Jewish? My parents were. Well, how about that? This co-worker named Brad Ridley began to have an influence on him. One day he showed him a Baptist Bible and told him about the heaven that awaited good Christians. David, who was easily swayed, eventually converted and abandoned the childhood faith in which his adoptive parents had raised him. It was a way for him to be accepted into his new community. With that in mind, he never said a word about his father, with whom he really hadn't communicated with since he joined the army. But military life as well as the oppressive environments of Virginia community started to weigh on him. David went back to New York to civilian life. However, he didn't go back to live with his father but instead, he tried to search for his biological mother, Betty Borden, who had given him up at birth. He found her number in the telephone book and was surprised to discover that she still lived in the Bronx, just a few blocks from the Berkowitz apartment. Betty Borden, who was now Mrs. Tony Falco, agreed to meet with a stranger who was her son. She welcomed him into her living room, where the furniture was covered in plastic just like Mama Pearl did, and told him about the circumstances of his birth and his maternal family background. David, who was expecting a reunion filled with tears and hugs, felt feelings unmoved. He also learned that Betty too was Jewish, as well as his biological father, who was named Max. At the time, she was already married to another man whom she did not love but was imposed upon her by her father. She wanted revenge and her son arrived purely by accident. Tony Falco, Betty's new husband, was an Italian Catholic who greeted David with familiarity. He offered him a beer before talking with him about baseball as if they had always known each other. You'll come back and see us, eh? Tony said that as they made their goodbyes, but Betty's fixed stare made David realize that there would never be a next time. David was shocked to learn that he was the product of an adulterous affair, shocked to learn that his mother had cheated on her husband at the time. She had none of the purity of Mama Pearl, who had been faithful body and soul to Nathan Berkowitz all her life. This reunion did nothing to appease him, but in fact tormented him. Perhaps he had overestimated the mother he had never known. He expected her to fall into his arms, to ask about what was new with him, and to find out about the life he led with his adoptive parents. But none of that happened. Pearl Berkowitz was a generous woman, and I knew that you'd be in good hands. 
She offered us to relieve her guilt as she shoved a cigarette into the corner of her mouth and asked if he had a lighter. Pearl was generous. She was the best mother in the world unlike you. That was how he wanted to reply, but he held back. He found himself for a second time disowned by the woman who had given birth to him. David had a bitter taste in his mouth and a knot in his stomach. He began to have second thoughts about the women. From that moment on, he considered women to be dishonest and selfish. He moved into a small apartment in Queens, the kind rented to singles, a two-room unit including a kitchen and a toilet. Without any actual diploma and without any skills, he took any job he could survive like a security guard in a shopping mall or as a taxi driver. Later, he was hired at the United States Postal Service, where he worked as a mail-sorting clerk. It was during this period that he started to become fascinated with fire and developed an obsession with pyromania. It gave him a feeling of power and pulling the fire alarm and watching the firefighters arrive gave him great satisfaction. But it should be noted that these fires were never started with the intention of harming anyone. David discovered that he derived a kind of sexual pleasure from each of his attempts, which in turn made him feel at peace. At the very act of starting a fire turned into a vital need for him because it also had a very strong erotic component. In 1976, he moved on to the top floor of a building in Pine Street. His obsession with pyromania even grew stronger. Neighbors began to notice strange things happening in the building and in the neighborhood. Dogs and cats started turning up dead and fires broke out very often without any explanation of how or why. They happened so often that firefighters were called to the neighborhood at least twice a week. Berkowitz's new apartment was even smaller than his last one, but the former soldier got used to it. His evenings were dreary. The silence of his home is punctuated with the sound of pipes and a dripping kitchen faucet, which irritated him more than ever and reminded him of his loneliness. In those times, his father's words came back to haunt him. A man shouldn't stay single. Almost every night he dreamt the same thing, about his mother in her hospital bed with her left breast amputated, crying and begging him to stay next to her. He dreamt of that witch, Etsy, serving him a dead rat on a plate as she laughed demonically. He dreamt of Betty burning his arm with a cigarette as she wrote the word bastard on his skin. Every time he awoke with a start, with his heart beating faster, with his eyes wide open and staring at the ceiling until Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Morning. 
David Berkowitz's bedroom window looked out directly onto a dirty parking lot surrounded by fences where a man named Sam Carr, who was homeless, lived. He had seen him on more than one occasion with a wobbly shopping cart, collecting garbage from the neighborhood and accompanied by a dog or two. Sam Carr's stench, his right eye with cataracts, his toothless mouth and pockmarked skin repulsed the young postal worker every time he passed by. Carr had several dogs, mostly Labradors and German Shepherds, which he raised and kept as companions. Every night their incessant barking and frightened annoyed the insomaniac David. A few days later, David was unable to stand it any longer and sent several anonymous threatening letters to the dog owner, but the latter didn't seem to care. To make matters worse, when he did run into him, Carr taunted him by opening his toothless mouth in a smile that looked more like a hideous grumice, as if he knew that he was the one who sent the letters. David has goose pimples. When he got home, he decided to do something about it. These bloody dogs are possessed by the devil. Two days later, Berkowitz grabbed his revolver and shot and seriously wounded one of them, a black Labrador. He quickly got back into his car and sped off, happy and satisfied. Hurting the dog had given him even more pleasure than his failed attempts at starting fires. Days later, he learned from a neighbor that the homeless man had moved his secret stash to another squad in the neighborhood. In April 1976, David went to visit one of his old army buddies, a man named Bill Parker, who was now living in Texas. Berkowitz showed up at his home unexpectedly and moved into the living room as if they had spoken to each other on the phone every day. After Parker offered him a beer and some roasted peanuts, David got right down, David got right down to the point. Bill, I need a gun. A good one. Can you help me out? He agreed to help him and together they went to a pawn shop and then later to a gun store where Berkowitz selected a 44 caliber Charter Bulldog revolver. Bill was then unaware of his friend's plan. Upon his return to New York, riding in his mustard-colored Ford Galaxy, David now spent his evenings traveling around the streets of Queens, Brooklyn, and Bronx. But what was he looking for? And for whom? Even he didn't know. One evening, he saw his father Nathan, wearing his ever-present black hat, leaning on a cane, carrying a loaf of shallow bread under his arms and hobbling across the street, forcing cars to wait for him to cross. David thought he looked emaciated, terribly old and sad. David's heart was aching. Mama was their whole world, and now that she's gone, the two men had become strangers to one another. It would be the last time that David would see his father. During the summer of 1976, while a heat wave swept through all of New York, making everyone unable to sleep, David continued crisscrossing the streets in his car. He saw couples intertwined, nonchalantly sipping a soda or beer and leaning on their cars. He began imagining himself in the kind of situation, a brunette in his arms and giggling under his kisses. Finally, he swept such thoughts from his mind. In truth, he detested the happiness that he saw in front of him. He hated the couples who expressed their love publicly, who proudly flaunted their mutual attraction and desire. Would he ever experience this kind of bliss? In July 1976, Donna Loria, 18, was returning home from a party with her friend Jody Valenti. Both of them were nurses and worked at the Our Lady of Hope Hospital in Bronx. The two girls lived in Queens in a predominantly Italian neighborhood. Sitting comfortably in their car, they cheerfully talked about their evening and just chatted naturally. Since it was hot, Jody, who was at the wheel, opened the window to let in a bit of fresh air. Finally, they separated kissing each other on the cheek and saying goodnight. Donna got out of the car. At the moment, a man approached them. In a split second, he took out his gun and fired. 
Donna collapsed and died instantly. He immediately disappeared into the night. Jody was unarmed. The police arrived at the scene. The headquarters, Jody Valenti, provided them with a very precise description of the killer. A white man, stocky, with curly black hair. The police spent the next few days looking for the man, but without any real clues, they eventually gave up. On October 23, 1976, Carl De Niro and his girlfriend Rosemary Keenan were leaving a discotheque in Brooklyn. Carl De Niro was a handsome young man with long brown hair. The couple was walking along a pedestrian street smoking a cigarette when they were accosted by a man who fired upon them before fleeing. De Niro was shot in the head but survived. His girl, however, succumbed to her injuries. The killer had seen Carl De Niro from behind and thought that he was a woman on seeing his long hair. On Thanksgiving weekend, Donna DeMacy, 16, and her friend Joanne Lomino, 18, became the mysterious killer's next victims. Joanne received three shots to the abdomen and another to the spine. Donna herself was only wounded in the arm. The two young women survived the attack, but Joanna learned that she would never walk again. On January 30, 1977, in Forest Hills, Christine, 26, and her fiancé, John Dale, 30, were sitting in their car in their neighborhood of Queens. John's car parked in an alleyway without any street lights. The couple decided to start having sex. They were machine-gunned right through the window when they were in the middle of the act. Christine died on the spot, but John, although seriously wounded, survived the attack. Panic began to grip everyone throughout the Bronx and Queens. As for the police, they started to draw a connection between these repeated attacks, which shared many similarities. They all involved young couples, girls with long brown hair, who all came from Italian or Jewish communities. At the scene of the attack on John and Christine, the police managed to retrieve a 44 caliber bullet. From that moment on, the mysterious assassin was dubbed a 44 caliber killer by the press. On March 8, 1977, on Dartmouth Street, which was only one street further than the previous massacre, the killer attacked Virginia, 21, a young Armenian girl. Virginia was walking alone after studying at a library in the neighborhood. The man followed her from a distance and shot her with his gun right in the middle of the street. Virginia tried to protect herself with a handbag and her books, but the bullet passed through them and lodged in her brain. During her autopsy, the coroner removed the bullet from the skull and turned it over to the police so that they could compare it with the other one found earlier. The two were a perfect match. On April 17, 1997, Ed Sullivan and Joseph Coffey of the New York police were rushed to the Bronx. The killer had struck once more. As they lifted the black sheet, they discovered two bloodied, dead bodies. The victims were Valentina Suriani and her boyfriend Alexander Acey, aged 18 and 21 respectively. But there is more. Another police officer handed Joseph Coffey a handwritten note. I'm a monster. I'm a son of Sam and I live to be hunted down. From my attic window, I can see the world passing by, but I'm not a part of it. I'm not on the same wavelength as everybody else. I'm programmed to kill and I must honor my father. The son of Sam? What did that mean? Various police stations spread the word around the letter and photocopied and distributed. A sniper killer proclaimed himself the son of Sam. The letter was the first in a long one-way correspondence. Two days later, the police put together a kind of emergency response team dubbed Omega in the hopes of tracking down and stopping the son of Sam. 
The team brought together investigators from every station along with uniformed patrol officers. Close to 300 officers were mobilized between Queens and the Bronx, where most of the killings occurred. On May 30th, while the New York police were still on his trail, the killer sent another letter. This time, it wasn't sent to the police, but to the editors of the New York Daily News. Hello, I'm from the gutters of New York, which are filled with dog shit, vomit, stale wine, urine, and blood. Hello from the sewers of New York, which swallow up these delicacies when they are washed away by the sweeper trucks. From the cracks in the sidewalks of New York and from the ants that dwell in these cracks and feed on the dried blood. In one day, the letter was made public and every New Yorker had heard about the contents of the message. A week went by when a new letter landed on Sergeant Kofi's desk. I'm still here, like a spirit who haunts the night, thirsty, hungry, who never rests until Sam is satisfied. There was no doubt that the police were dealing with an extreme narcissist who was in constant search of satisfaction. A man who would even dare to comment on one of his own letters sent to the New York Daily Post. Good job, reporters, but you forgot to use a period instead of a comma. Although the Omega team and their police officers continued patrol every night, no one knew when the killer would strike again and that created a great deal of fear. Those fears came true on June 26, 1977, when he attacked Judy Placido and Sal Lupo. At Hutchinson River Parkway, Judy was shot once in the temple, then again in the shoulder and a third time in her neck. Her friend received a shoulder wound. They miraculously survived the attempted killing but were unable to recall their attacker's face. On July 30, 1977, he killed Stacy Moskowitz, 20, and seriously injured her boyfriend Robert Violante. However, the bullet fragments in his cataract caused him to go blind. From Hampton to Queens, everyone in the town was living in terror, recalled one of the sons of Sam's survivors. In the New York Post from August 1, 1977, the first page displayed this fatalistic yet equally frightening headline. No one is safe from the son of Sam. The police blindly and misguidedly tried to prevent another attack by advertising young brunette women targeted by the killer to either cut or dye their hair in hopes of keeping him away since no blonde or red-headed victims had yet been reported. From Bronx to Queens and even Brooklyn, the mood grew heavy, made worse by a heat wave during one of the hottest summers that New York had ever known. The fetishistic nature of his murders, the killer who showed up without warning, and the police's unsuccessful attempts to capture him meant that now every resident sized each other up and analyzed each other. What if the killer was amongst them? They might even be the person who delivered the milk or the newspaper, or might be the next-door neighbor, or be a local shopkeeper. Now, all romantic trysts took place at home in order to avoid any tragedy. Theaters, discotheques, restaurants, and cafes all saw their attendance drop dramatically. Everyone feared son of Sam. Former police inspector Ed O'Sullivan recalled, There was no logical connection, but these crimes shared many similarities. In his opinion, which was shared by his colleagues, all the murders committed during the space of a few months had a sexual component. Police were left to face the grim conclusion that they had three deaths and four wounded as well as other victims who would have endured consequences for the rest of their lives, such as blindness in Robert Violente's cases. The New York police are still on the hunt for the one who calls himself the son of Sam. We advise people to be careful when they go out at night. Son of a bitch. Seated in his little dining room, David Berkowitz quickly turned off his TV. He gloated he felt all-powerful for the first time in his life. 
Him, the unwanted child, the failed soldier, the old virgin who had never been with the woman, had managed to turn the whole city upside down, with each scream, each piece of flesh he wounded, every drop of blood that dripped on the sidewalk, he felt more fulfilled than he did during the time when he was using drugs until he passed out. He went to his kitchenette with a marker in his hand and began to scribble on a piece of paper stuck to his fridge. He had plans for the next week. He went back to his couch and started to write a letter. On August 10th, 1977, another day of sweltering heat lay ahead. At 7 in the morning, the sun's brutal rays were already beating down from the blue sky. David Berkowitz did not have to work that day. He got into his car and headed to Costco, where he usually did his shopping. When he got back, he parked his car to a fire hydrant and went upstairs to his apartment. When he came down again a few hours later, he was angered to find a parking ticket left under his windshield. He pulled out the ticket and threw it away. He didn't know it, but at that moment, he made a very serious mistake the very one that would eventually lead to his capture. This simple case of an unpaid parking violation would put the police on his trail and what they found inside the vehicle were the tools of a commando operation. In the backseat of a yellow Ford Galaxy, the police found a commando Mark III shotgun and a 44 caliber Charter Bulldog revolver usually used by Air Force gunmen. In the glove compartment, they also discovered a list of future murders that Berkowitz had planned to commit including a shootout in Long Island Disco. Ed Sullivan and Joseph Kofi now had the feeling that they had finally caught the son of Sam. He was arrested at 11 p.m. just as he climbed into his car. David Berkowitz looked like a typical Bronx resident. He was wearing khakis, a short sleeve shirt, and a beige jacket. He was a stocky young man, short and punchy, with pale skin and frizzy black hair. He put out no resistance when the police ordered him to go with them down to the headquarters. With a smile on his face, he said to them mockingly, Well, that's it. You got me. It took you long enough. In the meantime, the police started searching his apartment, which was described as the kind of place that was typical of a single male. While they were there, they found various phrases written in marker on the walls of the bedroom, living room and kitchen. What was written didn't seem to make any sense, and the names of a certain Mr. William kept reappearing. The police also found maps of New York City, New Jersey, and Connecticut scattered on the floor with certain places circled in red, which likely indicated where he had planned to commit the future crimes. The police took all of it into evidence. Questioning Berkowitz was like a torture as he seemed to enjoy toying with the inspector's nerves as he sat before him. Here is this Mr. William written on the walls. Oh, yes, a young guy that I know. He speaks to me in my head. He scares me sometimes. Why does he scare you? What does he ask you to do? He's a child kidnapper. He keeps them in his basement. He asked me to train them to be real killing machines. Tell us what you were planning to do at this discotheque. I wanted to make a dramatic exit, you know why? Because there are mirror balls and they are very colorful. I love colors, don't you, Inspector? It would take two days for the police to get Berkowitz to confess and finally all at once. He started to recount the shootings. He didn't know any of his victims beforehand, and so the killing started out as an isolated event. As for the reason why he targeted Italian-Americans and Jewish couples, he said that it was purely by chance. Neither did he have any more to say about his obsession with long-haired brunettes who had long been subjected to a debate and fear. With respect to his son of Sam's signature, Berkowitz said that it referred to the demon that possessed a black Labrador that belonged to the homeless Sam Carr. The dog that he ended up injuring, 
as he explained the entity which haunted the dog was the first to tell him what he had to do. At the end of his interrogation, and after having spent a long time speaking with two psychiatrists, David was considered mentally competent and able to tell the difference between right and wrong. His long episodes of depression and hallucination may have been the result of psychotropics that he randomly took without medical supervision to prevent his repeated anxiety attacks. The man who millions of Americans saw on television as he was being arrested by the New York police was someone with blue eyes an innocent smile, and pale skin. His massive trial was followed by the entire nation. His verdict was announced on June 12, 1978. He was sentenced to six life sentences with the possibility of a parole after serving 25 years. Arousing fear, but also a kind of fascination. The son of Sam took advantage of this notoriety to tell his story in the press for financial gains. He was at his best in front of the journalist who interviewed him. He was freely talkative, smiling, and seemed to look and act like an average man, but very quickly his disturbing, rambling, unstable, and obsessive nature soon came out in full force. Sometimes he was moralistic, as in one occasion, when he told a Fox reporter who had come to interview him in the prison. Society needs to stop glorifying guns. Young people shouldn't have anything to do with a firearm. I'd like to speak openly to the teens and aspiring gang leaders and tell that prison isn't anything like you think. Or another time, before I was the son of Sam, but now I'm the son of Hope, because that is all I have keeping me alive. The money Berkowitz earned from the media, his star inmate status, and his oversized ego had genuinely begun to annoy and bother some people. Out of respect for the victims and survivors of the shootings as well as their families, New York passed what was called the Son of Sam Law. It allowed the money earned by criminals who sold their stories, autobiographies, and interviews to be seized in order to redistribute the money to serial killers or rapist victims associations. The law would later be adopted and enacted in 29 other states in the U.S. The arrest of Son of Sam generated a lot of media attention, discussion, and monopolized newspapers and radios across the Atlantic for a long time. Although the media coverage was significant, it was still not safe from rumors. There were those who swore that Berkowitz had been captured primarily because of Carmen Galante, head of the Banao family, an infamous mafiso who had a daughter with long hair, which caused them to fear that she might become the killer's next victim. Allegedly, Galante made his henchmen available to New York police in order to secure his arrest. The Son of Sam case was reopened in 1996, and since then, it has given free reign to many conspiracy theories and much more speculation. David Berkowitz remains one of the most iconic serial killers in American judicial history over the last 40 years. What motivated or triggered the killings has never really been established. However, his background had an obvious impact on his decisions. He was described as an introvert, loner. He wasn't able to get involved in group activities. He followed a disturbing pattern of thinking that guided his daily behavior, even though he was capable of some moments of lucidity. Berkowitz converted to evangelical Christianity in 1987 and has since proclaimed himself the Son of Hope. He has also written and published his biography entitled Son of Hope, the prison journals of David Berkowitz, which was released in 2005. He does not receive any copyright or royalties from the sale of the book and has even agreed to donate all of the profits to the victim support associations. A film which traces his criminal career called The Summer of Sam came out in 1999 with actor Adrian Brody playing the title role. 
Today, Berkowitz is 68 years old and is still behind bars. We're at the end of our show for today, so feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take 5 seconds to leave us a 5-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.